0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 8 this morning, returning back to where we left off. We're still in the uh, opening section. We haven't yet reached uh, verse 22, which I'm really eager to get to, but I don't want to give short shrift to the first 21 verses, because I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, edification that comes out of this. And in particular, um, the political applications and what we're going to see in verses 12 and following that have wisdom benefits both in time and in eternity. And I think all too often we're very quick to just look at it only on a temporal basis, only for the value that it has in time and fail to realize that the real application comes... um, not in this life, but in the next, and as far as the reward is, uh, is concerned. So anyway, we'll talk about that as well. Let's get started by opening with a word of prayer and ask the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under his authority. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for the blessing that we have to study and for the benefits, Father, the benefits that come in time and ultimately the eternal benefits that come uh, when we stand before you and when we receive the the reward. Thank you for your glory. Uh, Open our eyes. Bless us in this study, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are dealing with point two in the outline, and so I forgot to jot down the slide number. I'll just scroll down until we get there. Uh, Personified wisdom in chapter 8 is a sharp contrast with the woman from chapter 7. That's point 1. Under this we had an A, B, and a C. And so, uh, yeah, if you're going to contrast these women, uh, bad woman in chapter 7, great woman in chapter (laughs) 8, okay? And tell the difference. And uh, understand which is the one you want to be embracing and which is the one you want to be running away from. You want nothing to do. With, uh, with the harlot. Secondly, wisdom speaks in the first person as to her associations and disassociations. Who is it that she wants to dwell with? Who is it that she is intimate with? And who is it that she wants nothing to do with? How does she separate herself from those things? All right, And uh, I think we've been pretty clear on this uh, as, and what it is that's an abomination to her lips and what it is that she wants nothing to do with. Uh, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth, I hate that 's verse 13. all right, and so there 's things that we embrace and there 's things that we shun, and uh, that 's not wrong that 's biblical that's not, and, and hate is not uh, the opposite of love. Hate is love in its full application, as we understand it, where we cling to what is evil and hate, or cling to what is good and hate what is evil that 's letting love be without hypocrisy. And uh, if it's not clear enough in Proverbs, at least we got to see how clear it is by the time you get to, uh, to Romans chapter 12 there. All right. And so uh, the associations and the disassociations via a love-hate dichotomy. And I enjoy the word dichotomy, all right, because it's not... Uh, It's not an either or, it's not a contrast, it's not one or the other, they're both true. It's like the body-soul dichotomy, we're dichotomous beings as body and soul. And so we don't think of ourselves as either or, uh, body or soul, it's both, it's both and in a dichotomy. And then of course, once you receive the living human spirit, it's a trichotomy, as a trichotomous body-soul and spirit, you understand. And so this love-hate dichotomy has the appropriate applications in the right setting, not in a carnal way, all right? It's how we can be angry and yet do not sin and how we can hate uh, while we love and uh, not in any kind of a schizophrenic or contradictory or problematic kind of way. Now under this, we see how wisdom dwells, actively dwells with those who actively dwell in the Word of God. We spend a lot of time in the realms of dwelling, in the realms of abiding, in the realms of occupation with Christ, occupying with our savior occupying with his truth i wisdom dwell with prudence and i find knowledge and discretion and so there's the nature of how the word of god lives and abides and dwells and how it's connected together in the full understanding of the word of god see it's not just simply facts as in the case of gnosis or or knowledge but it's put together combined with other facts it's systematically digested it's systematically applied And uh, that's why we see wisdom and prudence and knowledge and discretion. And we have all four of them that are then linked together in this uh, particular way. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. And this is what we get into now in uh, the next application. So there was point A. Wisdom actively dwells with those who actively dwell in the word of God. You find that it's reciprocal. Uh, Secondly, the fear of the Lord hates evil. Not only in Proverbs 8.13, but its connection to Proverbs 16.6, as well as Psalm 45.7, Psalm 97.10, and Jude 23. There's an application in the New Testament. Hating the garment polluted by the flesh, as we have mercy on those that we can't snatch from the fire. There's those that we can, if we can snatch them from the fire, we do snatch them from the fire, but otherwise having mercy. Hating even, those, uh, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh the flesh all right so that's jude and verse 23 which gets us now to new material as we move to verse 14 counsel is mine and sound wisdom we get that i am understanding power is mine power is mine and so now here's an introduction of a concept that we have throughout the scripture is the sense that the word of god is alive and powerful The word of God is alive and powerful. Maybe you've heard a pastor recite that on an occasion or whatnot, all right? The word of God is alive and powerful. It is the living and abiding and powerful word of God. And so we see it here. Again, we have the reference in Proverbs 8, 14. I am understanding power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. And so we're going to see some applications of that power here um, as we work our way through these verses. But just start with the issue of power. All right, The Word of God is alive and powerful. It's not just simply um, a system of philosophy in contrast with other systems of philosophy. It's not just simply a, a, a mode of wisdom that we might employ um, or not (laughs) that we might pick and choose we might compare to other modes of wisdom the the wisdom of the egyptians or the uh, wisdom of the babylonians or uh, in the ancient world uh, the edomites were known for wisdom of all things all right there were some uh, wise men among the edomites or other wise men among the greeks you know philosophers and other wise men or you could Go look at Confucius and talk about wise men among the Chinese or different uh, aspects there. Um, in the in secular life, in earthly matters, there is earthly wisdom and there's a benefit to earthly wisdom and earthly matters, but it only goes so far. And when you put it up against the wisdom of God, there is no comparison. The wisdom of God makes the wisdom of a man foolishness. All right, And uh, in the contrast there. The wisdom of man does not have the power that the wisdom of God has. Huge difference in what the wisdom of God will do. All right, so yeah, maybe you picked up some, uh, some uh, pointers here and there. Maybe you've, maybe you've even adopted some principles from uh, poor Richard's almanac or whatever. Maybe, maybe you feel like it's early to bed, early to, uh, to rise, makes a, a man healthy, wealthy, and wise or whatever. That's great, all right? Only so long as... You remember it, you think about it, you make use of it, and, and any application you make of it is strictly going to be in the, uh, in the earthly realm. All right, Lefty, loosey, righty, tighty. Okay? That's going to help you when you're screwing something in or unscrewing something or trying to remember why, you know, why you're making it tighter when you're trying to make it looser and trying to un- unscrew this thing. Well, But see, those kind of things, so long as you remember them and so long as you use them, there'll be a value there. All right? But they're not alive. They're not powerful. They're not going to take hold of your thinking at, a, at an unsuspecting moment when you're at work or you're at school or you're with wherever and something is, uh, uh, you're faced with a, a conundrum. Uh, those proverbs or maxims or, or uh, pithy sayings in, in earthly wisdom don't come alive and spring forth from your soul in a living and powerful way. You will never wake up in the middle of the night just compelled by lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, <laughs> right? But the Word of God does come alive. The Word of God is alive. It does dwell richly. It will spring forth. It will grab hold of you in things. It'll, it'll turn your spiritual eyes to look at things in different ways. It has the, uh, the, the pleasant habit of doing that. Uh, and, and all more frequently, the more that you learn how to listen to it. See. all right so it is alive and powerful not only do we have it here in proverbs eight fourteen, but proverbs 24 i think spe- speaks to this maybe not in the exact same way but you'll see it proverbs 24 and verse 5 a wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases power well what kind of strength are we talking about there what kind of power are we talking about there is that physical strength Talking about what he can bench press in the, in the, in the weight room? <laughs> All right. What kind of strength is this about? What kind of power is this about? To be powerful in the scriptures, see, is uh, vital that we recognize this. And in some respects, uh, I've known Christians that are absolute invalids, you know, wheelchair bound, physically weaker than anything in the world. But I wouldn't want to go up against them in any kind of a spiritual combat because they are mighty prayer warriors that are armored up beyond anything. All right. Well, there it is. Proverbs twenty four five. I like it. How about Psalm eighty nine nineteen? This one uh, often is not thought of in this way. Psalm eighty nine nineteen. But I think it is. I think it should be taken this way. And I think we want to look at Psalm eighty nine not only in a Davidic application, but then uh, messianically, you know, prophetically, looking forward to the greater uh, Son of David, that is Jesus Christ Himself. And observe the uh, the fulfillments here. All right, do I want to back up or not? I could spend all day in Psalm 89. It's a it's a beautiful Psalm. Uh you will notice in, in leading up to this verse, there are previous references to strength, uh to the mighty Lord, uh, to his power. Um All right, let's just say, uh, okay, I'll I'll read the whole psalm, but quickly, we won't lose our context on this. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen, okay? It's key. I have sworn to David, my servant. And he's talking to the literal David, of course, but then through him, he's talking to the son of David, the greater son of David, that is our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. In the assembly of the holy ones. And unless they're angel phobic... Uh, which too many christians are we can view this in the angelic realm we have no problem switching from human to, to angel switching from the physical world to the spiritual world and it's a beautiful passage in that that focuses on the uh the divine counsel that is the angels in heaven the heavens will praise your wonders O lord your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones for who among who in the skies is comparable to the lord who among the sons of the mighty is like the lord and this is a total rebuke of isaiah 14 of the i will uh, lies of satan of the uh, sons of the mighty okay the bene elohim the bene Hael, the sons of the mighty who would voice such blasphemy as i will be like the most high god there is nobody like him a god greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones this is the divine counsel that michael heiser writes about and um all the studies that he does in this realm, I think is, 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 is significant. He is awesome above those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab. Okay? What did he have against that poor Jericho harlot, right? No, not the Jericho harlot. Okay? Spelled differently in Hebrew too, by the way. It's unfortunate that uh, English confuses things. It's it's Satan, all right? It's the rebellion of Satan. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who was slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heaven is yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. Uh, The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. And there there is an angelic, invisible application to be found in contrast of north and south. Satan was lusting after that seat in the recesses of the north and um, different applications there. This was fascinating to me as a child because I had a grandmother named Tabor, Grandma Grandma Tabor. All right. Anyway, the point being, this is an amazing chapter that deals in eternal issues, deals in the human realm, in the angelic realm, that goes from Alpha to Omega, that talks in, in poetry against Rahab, that is Satan, that deals with things of power. Okay, things of power connected to the truth of the word of God. So um, there's a strong arm in verse 13, a, a mighty hand. Your right hand is exalted. Who sits at his right hand? Remember, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. See, the law came by Moses, but loving kindness and truth. Right. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. So all the mighty power of God is poured out upon us, upon believers, upon those that are walking in truth, those that are humble before his righteousness and his loving kindness. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our king is the Holy One of Israel. All of that is background to get you to verse 19. (laughs) Once you have spoken in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. All right, so here is the strength and here is the power. I have given help to one who is mighty. Again, if I'm going to bring this back now and connect it to Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 24, if I'm going to build this case appropriately, um, we need to evaluate verse 19 whether he's talking about physical might, physical strength, some uh, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilder or whatever, uh, or, you know... Um, is he mighty in the Word of God? Is he mighty in the Scriptures? Why is it that it wasn't until the eighth son, as all the sons of, of, uh, Je- of uh, Jesse were brought before Samuel, uh, why was it not the, the, the physically impressive Eliab that was the one that was chosen? Why is it the runt of the litter? Why is it the youngest, the smallest? All right? And, and the Lord had to rebuke Samuel on that, say, look, God doesn't look as man looks. Don't be impressed by, by his physical appearance. He didn't pick one who was mighty physically. He picked one that was mighty in the word of God. A boy probably at the age of 10. And one who had even at his age killed a lion and a bear in defending his father's sheep. Because he was mighty in the scriptures and had faith in the Lord. All right, I found, so I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm will also strengthen him. And we start to realize this is not only applicable to David, but this is actually prophetically looking forward to Jesus Christ. Okay, and uh, and different things there. All right, you get down to I mean it's clear enough. You get down to verse twenty-seven. I shall make him my firstborn, my highest in the of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep him forever. He cannot lie to David, He cannot lie to David. That's verse 35. "Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And I tell you, all these horrible, horrible churches that, that want to usher in replacement theology and shove the church in place of Israel, they're making God a liar to David, and it's just it's sad in my mind. OK, over to the New Testament then, Mark 12:24. I believe that uh, these passages are talking about the power of the Word of God and how it comes alive inside each one of us. All right? If it helps to think of Popeye eating his spinach or whatever, if you like those old cartoons where he pops the lid off the can and chugs the thing down, nasty. Um, probably paid for by the spinach lobby. Some kind of spinach farmers of America that underwrote the whole cartoon. But think about the cartoon and think about Believers in the Word of God, when you stop and you confess your sins and you get in fellowship, when you start to meditate upon the principles of the Word of God, when you spend your time fellowshipping over doctrine, it's like Popeye in a spinach. You are, you, are being, you are being built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Mark 12. Okay. You know the story. I don't have to explain it. I can get lost in this chapter too. Uh, The Sadducees, and they invented this ridiculous, ridiculous thing with this black widow, horrible woman that kept having husbands die on her, right? Husband after husband after husband after husband, all the little brothers just coming along and saying, okay, I'm next. And seven of them died. And for them, this is just genius because they think they're disproving the resurrection. They think that they've got this conundrum that Jesus can't answer, that, you know, they're going to get to the resurrection and, and this woman's going to have, you know, seven, seven brothers for, uh, anyway, it's, it's just ludicrous. Seven brides for, no, one bride for seven brothers in, in uh, a silly thing. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be for all seven married her? And Jesus said to them, and just pay attention to his answer. Is this not the reason you were mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? I love that. I love that tandem, all right? Because he's using it as an either or, you know, just the academic understanding of the Scriptures or the power of God as if it's a separate aspect. But in reality, you can think of this as not as as an either or, but as a both and. And they don't get either one. Okay. There's two components to it, the scriptures and the power that comes through the scriptures, and they don't know either one. Not at all. And I think that serves as a warning because they were, you know, smart. I mean, they weren't stupid in their scholarship. Think about uh, folks that, you know, they they, they know information, but they don't have any grasp of the power of God. Okay. I think that takes the Holy Spirit to to communicate. It takes the, you know, how, how many scholars, Bible scholars aren't even saved. And so if they're not saved and they don't have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, then how are they going to grasp the pri- They're not. First Corinthians 2 says they're not. All right. Well, don't let me go, let me go on that because that's maybe we were reading a feminist Bible scholar this morning and why she was rewriting 1 Timothy 2.12 to allow women to teach and exercise authority over a man. And uh, well, she doesn't understand the scriptures or the power of God. I'll tell you that right now. Luke twenty four nineteen, the two on the road to Emmaus. One we know by name, and uh, Cleopas, and the other one we don't know by name. And uh, Jesus starts walking up to him and says, "Hey, what are you talking about?" And uh, they were talking about him. okay. But he was disguised from them. They didn't realize who they were talking to. And so uh, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? you got to be the only guy in town that doesn't know what's happening in this town. So he said to them, What things? <laughs> and they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, notice, Mighty indeed and word, in the sight of God and in all the people. Mighty indeed and word, OK? And I stop to think this mighty indeed, in terms of the, the signs, the miracles, the, the visible manifestations of God's power and sovereignty, calming the sea, walking on water, rising the dead. that's mighty indeed, but also mighty in word in the sight of God and of all the people. And both testimonies were true when it comes to Jesus Christ. The Pharisees could not dispute his miracles. They said, we know you're from God because of these miracles you're doing. We're not doing any of these miracles. No one can do these miracles you're doing unless God has sent him. So the Pharisees testified that he was mighty indeed. But then the people were testifying that he was mighty in word. Because every time he preached, they came back saying, wow, we've never heard teaching like this before. He speaks with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. All right. And so the audience then communicated the testimony that he was mighty in word. Both aspects are true. Mighty in deed and mighty in word in the sight of God and all the people. And I think this is a nice um, admonishment and and a good reminder, particularly since we're a local church that runs a training ministry that uh, for the men that are training to be pastors or Bible teachers or whatever else, if you want to be mighty in the scriptures, if you want to be a, a, a mighty evangelist, mighty in the Word of God, well, make use of the Word of God, because that's where the power is. The power is not in your eloquence. The power is not in your oratory or in your ability to, in your, how clever you are to express it. The power is in the Word itself. And that's why I think Scripture Memory Melodies is the, the best thing out there going because it's, not, uh, it's, it's the Word of God. It's the actual scriptures themselves. Let the power of Scripture do what the power of Scripture does. OK? Not the, the catchy tunes and the rhyming lyrics and the things that make the tears start flowing from your eyes. It's the power of the Word of God. All right, so there it is. Luke 24:19, Mighty in deed and in word. Acts 18:24. I almost left this out. In fact, uh, I did leave it out. If we uh, had gotten to the slide last week, this verse wouldn't have been on the slide. And then I got to thinking, how did I leave that out? That's got to be on there. So thankfully, we didn't get to the slide last week and had an extra week to improve it. This is the uh, third missionary journey. He's leaving Corinth. And um, gets to uh, uh, Ephesus. So see Acts eighteen twenty three. Having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Notice though, those are two separate statements. Yes, he was eloquent, but that's a separate issue from the final part of the verse that says, and he was mighty in the scriptures. You cannot confuse those two statements. And how many people do? Everybody does. They want to just blend the things and say, oh, well, eloquence equals mighty in the scriptures. No, eloquence equals eloquence. (laughs) Okay? Do you want to build a ministry based on eloquence? Or do you want to build a ministry based on might in the scriptures? Okay? And you'll also notice here in this context, even if you're mighty in the Scriptures, don't think that uh, you may not have blind spots or there's hang-ups or there's issues you need to improve upon, realms you've got to grow in, you might be mistaken on certain issues. Don't think because you're mighty in the Scriptures that yeah, that you're not still learning, you're not still growing, and that uh, uh, some exhorters can come along and come alongside and, and uh, fine-tune what you're doing there. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Notice that's a separate issue too. That's not eloquence. That's fervent in spirit. Being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And so it's not that he was inaccurate. He was accurate, but he was only accurate so far as the context allowed him to be accurate. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay? So it's not that he was inaccurate. He was accurate, but he needed it to be more accurate. All right? And it takes nothing away from his power in the scriptures. He was powerful in the scriptures as he knew them, as he understood the scriptures. That's why I think and in some cases you can get a brother or a sister in Christ that's got a it's got a thimble full of doctrine, but they use the thimble the thimbleful that they have. They, they they use that thimble a whole lot more than a lot of folks that have a bucket full of doctrine. Okay, and this other guy's got a bucket full of doctrine, but he never uses it or he hardly ever uses it. This other guy's got a thimble full of doctrine, but he's using it all the time. All right. And so they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And that's why we often view this as the exhortation gift, because the parakaleo activity is the come alongside activity. It is not the stand in front authority activity. Uh, They're not apostles and they're not rebuking him. But they are encouraging him and they are uh, exhorting him, explaining to him. And by the way, you've got to deal with this if you're going to talk about women teaching or exercising authority over a man. Because no question, Priscilla's a woman here and Apollos is a man. I think uh, she's off the hook though because she's serving with her husband and the two of them are in ministry together. Um, but it is, uh, it is a discussion item. And so they explained it to him, and he's fine with that. He accepts it. He learns from it. He grows from it. He doesn't. Uh, he's not all indignant or doesn't get offended. Like, who do you think you are? You know, don't you know who I am? I'm mighty in the scriptures. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm eloquent. I'm 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 fervent in spirit. You know, and and I'm an Alexandrian by birth, so I have far better uh, uh, Greek credentials than you guys. All right, man. I'm polished with my with my. Uh, uh, classical uh, Greek uh, background and all the rest. <laughs> no, he accepts it, which is which is which is just great. So uh, in verse 27, he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brethren encouraged him. They said, "Great!" They wrote a letter of reference for him. They wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He gets to provide the the watering. Remember when Paul said, "I planted, Apollos watered." That's what he's talking about. Paul planted that ministry in in Corinth and then departed on missionary journey number three, and then Apollos arrives. And Apollos is able to start doing the watering. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Again, the power of the Word of God comes from the Scriptures. Okay? It's not your rhetoric, it's not your arguments, it's the Scriptures. Let the scriptures speak for themselves. Let the scriptures speak for themselves, and then finally, of course, Hebrews four twelve. Hebrews four twelve. Why is the word of God so powerful? Because it pierces where it needs to pierce. It doesn't uh, just simply uh, stop at the surface level of things. It doesn't stop with the lame excuse you made, uh, or I made. You know, I can get very, uh, I can get very uh, content. Yeah, I'm all right. With a surface level examination and and the Word of God says, no, let's dig deeper. Let's peel away, let's peel that uh, onion away and let's let's get down deeper and see what we're really looking at. So the uh, Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. That's pretty deep, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the core right there. You can't get deeper than that. Both joints and marrow. And is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So keep lying to yourself. The word of God is not fooled. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of whom, with whom, of Him, with whom we have to do. Okay, He is the one with whom we have to do. He is the one we answer to. He is the one that we're accountable for. All right, we address as Father, the one who impartially judges. Okay we better, I mean, if we address as Father the one who impartially judges, we better conduct ourselves with fear and trembling upon this earth. All right? And by the way, if you're missing out on Sunday night in 1 Peter, you're missing out. There's, uh, there's some neat things coming up and, and Lewis is uh, working hard to study these things. Anyway, it is alive and powerful and that's who we have to do with. And uh, we should embrace that for what it is. All right. Fourthly then, point D. Temporal intimacy with the Word results in eternal reward. Temporal intimacy, that is in time, with the Word of God, results in eternal reward. So I'm going to get back now to Proverbs 8, and let's look at 15 through 21. And let's try to expand our thinking out of politics, okay? out of time, out of The immediacy of things, and ask ourselves is Proverbs 8 really driving at eternal matters? Is the benefit an eternal benefit? Okay. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. All who judge rightly. And we're looking at applications here that seem to express a universality. That seems to express, well, this is the way it always is. By me, kings reign. (laughs) I mean, that's just what happens. It's like saying dogs bark or cats meow. Until you think about it and you start to look and say, well, not every king. Rulers decree justice. Well, not every ruler. In fact, there are kings and rulers out there that are in open defiance of God's wisdom, that that hate God's wisdom. And they don't decree justice, they decree injustice. They rule in a tyranny over injustice, but since they're in charge, the injustice benefits them and they're fine with it. By me, princes rule and nobles. All who judge rightly, but not everybody judges rightly. So we want to look at this passage and ask ourselves: Are we looking at something that's normative in time? Are we looking at something that's normative in eternity? Something that is actually promised as a reward for faithfulness in time? And can we view this really in both uh, in both ways? It goes on to say, well, yeah. Let's get the rest of this down through verse twenty-one. Um, riches. Uh, Verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. So we see there's a back and forth, there's a reciprocal love relationship. We want to have that temporal intimacy with the word of God. There is a benefit to that. There is a reward for that, a consequence for that. All those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me. So that's why it helps to find him, <laughs> or her. Uh, let's keep it as a feminine gender here. So, uh, so w- what do you have when you found wisdom? When you found Jesus Christ, what do you have? All right? When you find Christ, what have you found? And when you found it, when do you appropriate it, or when is the, the um, realization of that complete? Is it in time or is it in eternity? And are are we too quick to lose sight of this? All right, so those who seek me will find me. It's all about coming to him, right? Riches and honor are with me. That's why you want to find him. Speaking of the Lord or her, speaking of wisdom. They're with me, enduring wealth and righteousness, enduring wealth. Okay? Not the wealth that passes away. Not the wealth that rusts. Not the wealth that's stolen. Not the wealth that, uh, remember we're laying up treasures in heaven where, where thieves and moth, uh, where thi- moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Enduring wealth. Not the, not the passing away wealth. Not the perishable things like silver and gold. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. And my yield... That's an important term. Better than the choicest of silver. Okay. So we're not talking about um, money. We're not talking about uh, plunder. Okay. That's why I think it's, it's vital that we teach our children or even ourselves, we teach the adult population of our country the distinction between money and wealth the distinction between uh, something that's of, of a passing value as a medium of exchange and something that is of a, uh, of a durative value because it is productive and it is, it is uh, um, of a longer investment value. And in this case, it is eternal. All right? When you have the ideas of fruit and the ideas of yield, you understand we're talking about concepts of not immediate gratification. Fruit takes time to be produced. There are seasons in which fruit is produced. And likewise, yield. When is, the, when is a yield realized? Okay, well, depending on what you're talking about, there could be different yields in, on different seasons, but you can, might have an annual yield or, or different things. But on an eternal basis, when, is our, when, is, when, when we've laid up treasures in heaven, when do those investments mature? When is it that, that we, we receive the yield from those deposits? okay? And is that what this passage is talking about? I think it is, more so than the other. We'll outline both sides for you, though, here in a, in a moment. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of justice, to endow... Okay, so we have all of these terms are, are coming together from 15 down to 21. Now we add another one to the mix. We add the term endowment. Wow. Well, when is an endowment realized? <laughs> when is it that an endowment is, is unveiled and, and made available to the recipients of the endowment? To endow those who love me with wealth. Notice, it's not just plunder, not just loot, not just silver and gold, not just money, don't confuse money with wealth. That I may fill their treasuries. When is God going to fill our treasuries? I'm not talking about his daily provision in time. We get that. My God will supply your need. Yes, there is daily provision in time. But the filling of the treasuries, when does that come? When are the accounts fully settled? Yeah, I at the judgment, for you and I in the church age, it's the judgment seat of Christ. It's when the reward is pronounced, when the endowment is granted. It's when the yield is, is uh, furnished. That I may fill their treasuries. Okay? You might think of this in different ways, I guess. the uh, Think about it, you know, uh, we lay up treasures in heaven, what does God contribute? I mean, if if when I get to heaven, if the only stuff I've got there is the stuff I put in there? Or are there some matching funds that are also, you know, like a 401k, I'm, I'm putting some in, my employer's putting some in, okay? $2 for every dollar I contribute, $3 for every dollar I contribute, or whatever, okay? What is God putting in there as God is filling our treasuries? All right. Matthew 6: 19 through21, of course. We're familiar with this. Matthew six. Now don't get me wrong, if you don't lay up anything in heaven, <laughs> you won't have anything there, all right? And what you do have is going to be taken away and given to somebody else. Now, you've, you've got wood hand stubble, and the fire burns it all, and, and you've got nothing else to show for it. OK? The one coin you do have is going to be taken away and given to the guy that's got 10. Because God Himself also contributes to our, uh, to our IRA. All right, Matthew six verses nineteen through twenty-one. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and moth, uh, moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, notice your treasure. There your heart will be also. Where is it that you're making your deposit? Where is it that you're banking with security? Where is it that you find that has the eternal value? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? Is it in time or is it in eternity? Where is it that you find your security? It's a big contrast. All right. Now. I don't want to... um, come back and say, well, this is all eternal. There's no kind of temporal application to this, because that's not true. That would be incorrect. There is a wisdom application on this earth when kings do live according to the word of God. Temporally on earth, the wisdom of God does maintain a sovereign rule through human kings. That is a fact. That is a fact. And if I want to go through this text simply on an earthly basis, I can do so. And I can find that it corresponds with other passages of Scripture, and I've got no problems accepting it on that basis. So we can start with that, but then I want to go back a second time and look at the eternal scale of things as well. So temporally on the earth, the wisdom of God maintains a sovereign rule through human kings. So by me, kings reign, yes. There is no king that's reigning, no president in office that Jesus Christ has not put there. And that includes those that are there for our blessing and those that are there for our discipline. Every single ruler on the national level, the state level, the local level. That's why we've got the broad spectrum here of kings, rulers, princes, and nobles. Okay? It's a broad spectrum to show the different uh, levels. And not one of them rules apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ controls history. He has been appointed by God the Father to to exercise the dominion in this realm. And there's no question about that. Daniel 2 and verse 21. If you don't already know these, mark these down and then memorize them. I'm taking our teenagers through these right now in the teen class. Going through the book of Daniel. So hopefully they'll uh, keep track of this when they enter into their adult capacity and Start participating in uh, an election process, for example. By the way, this is not a, an excuse to not vote. <laughs> it's like it's like saying, well, God is sovereign, and uh, if, if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. I don't have to go evangelize. No, God is sovereign, and he's going to put the uh, ruler in office that he wants in office, but that does not remove my responsibility to exercise my Uh, civic duties in submission to the governing authorities that are over me. Because God has very graciously placed me where he's placed me. And I uh, partake accordingly. Alright, Daniel 2 and verse 21. This was the lesson that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. He got it the first time in the uh, dream of his statue in Daniel chapter 2. And um, as the mystery is unfolded here. Daniel 2.19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. See it again? The link between wisdom and power? It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He's the one that does that. That's his realm. All right? And so the fact that this is you know, not Comanche territory, (laughs) and it's not Spanish territory, and it's not French territory, and it's not Mexican territory, and it's not uh, Republic of Texas territory, and it's not Confederate States of America territory. The fact that it's United States of America territory that we are standing upon right here, right now, is because Jesus Christ controls history. Because God himself is in sovereign control. And when he just decides to tear us down for our evil blasphemies, then whoever comes next will be in the hands of Jesus Christ, same as everybody else. He changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And notice that may include some of those kings. It may not include some of those kings. It may be the men of understanding that have to endure while they watch the tyrants up there on the throne. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So this is the whole point of this statue, with the head of gold, the chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet partly of iron, partly of clay. It's about God demonstrating that he is in absolute control of human history. That he maintains his sovereign rule, his wisdom, his power. Nothing happens that's outside of his will. Over to chapter 4, this is what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. He's walking around on his roof. He's all impressed with his palace. He's all impressed with his hanging gardens. He's all impressed with the glories of Babylon that he has built. And he's going to get humbled in this process. And uh, the rebuke is going to come, announced by the angels. Again, there's a vision. And um, he has to learn these lessons Daniel 4.25, you're going to be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time or seven years will pass over you until you recognize that El Elyon, most high God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So we have the mayors we get, the governors we get, the presidents we get. The sovereignty that's over us is because God is directing the course of human history. Sometimes it's for our blessing, and sometimes it's for our judgment. But the man of wisdom can still have that insight. The same expression is repeated down in verse thirty-two: "You will be driven away from mankind." Again, it's almost word for word. In verse twenty-five was the promise, and nearly a year later, the uh, the uh, threat was made good. Okay. Because 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. (laughs) Man, stay off the roof. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Wow, to me be the glory, great things I have done. All right, look out. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. It's the final verse of the chapter. It's the final words we have recorded of Nebuchadnezzar uh, in his earthly life. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. It's a beautiful statement. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. All right. Temporally on this earth, the wisdom of God maintains his sovereign rule through human kings. In the next chapter, a generation later, Belshazzar has to learn these lessons in uh, Daniel 5, verses 18 through 21. And it's, uh, it's a reference back to the events of chapter 4. You get this whippersnapper of a king who's not even a complete full king. He's, only a, uh, he's, got a, he's a second king. He's a co-regent with his father. His father spent more time out of town than in town. And so the son spent more time in Babylon kind of running the local matters. Doing everything his dad told him to do. And uh, also surviving a siege as the Persians have been outside the gates here for almost a year, um, laying siege to Babylon. By the time you don't really know that in chapter 5 until the end of the chapter, and Babylon falls and Belshazzar dies. But uh, it's an interesting contrast to read the final words of of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and then read the final words of Belshazzar in chapter 5. What a contrast! Because Nebuchadnezzar was saved and Belshazzar was not. Anyway, Daniel is uh, giving Belshazzar the whatnot and says uh, in verses 18 through 21, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. The only reason he had that kind of power is because God put him there. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. See, the sword belongs in the hands of the temporal ruler. And uh, the matters of life and death were entrusted to the king. He should use it biblically. He should use it properly to punish murderers and to, to defend the image of God and to uh, to defend life. But there it is. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared a life. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. In a lot of ways, the king is a reflection of God. His sovereignty is a testimony to the sovereignty of God that exalts and brings down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, there's the problem. You go beyond what God has placed you in, you, you get maladjusted to the grace of God that put you there. You start thinking that, hey, I did all this. I deserve all this. Aren't I great? You walk around on your roof and just glory and hear all the great things you've done. Became arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. And he was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. You know, and, and the Bible doesn't technically tell us this, but my suspicion, why do you think Nebuchadnezzar even had a throne to come back to after seven years? You understand that? I mean, when you know the history of the intrigue, they were very quick to assassinate, and murder, and usurp, and take the throne. And there was no there was a, a short list of generals and other uh, folks, including Belshazzar and his dad, uh, that would have very easily just off Nebuchadnezzar, sitting out there in the backyard eating grass with the with the animals. Okay, I believe Daniel held the kingdom in his in his stead. That Daniel personally ruled as the vizier, as the prime minister and ruled in the name of Nebuchadnezzar until his sanity was restored to him. And then Daniel was humble enough to to exercise the authority and not seize the title for himself and hand it back to Nebuchadnezzar after seven years. Anyway, it says he was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that El Elyon, the Most High God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. And interestingly enough, Belshazzar knew all this. Verse 22, yet you, his son, technically grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. I believe during that seven-year period of time, it was a teaching illustration. Daniel got a chance to teach and testify to the government officials why it was that he was holding the throne in the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And when his sanity was restored, his throne was restored and that all of the political establishment of Babylon was aware of it. That, you, can't, that's, that, you have to take verse 22 that way. You knew all this. You knew all this. All right? God's in charge. In fact, he puts on the throne sometimes the basest of men. I didn't read that verse. I was back in chapter 2. The basest of men. But he's still in charge. Okay? Acts 17.26, Romans 13.1, very quickly, we'll, we'll, we'll review these concepts next week because I'm out of time, but um, there are folks who want to rewrite the Bible and they want to be subject only to the governing authorities they like, rather than the governing authorities that are over them. Um, they want to be subject to governing authorities that are following biblical principles And they view that they don't have to be subject to the governing authorities that are defying biblical principles. And as such, they've adopted an interpretation that doesn't come from the text, but they've adopted an interpretation that rewrites the text in a way that that they prefer. And I don't believe we're free to do that. Acts 17.26 God made from one man every nation of mankind. He made from one man. We're all Adamic. Okay? We're all Noahic, technically. But we're all Adamic. Every last one of us is in Adam. And then at the Tower of Babel, when the population reached the point that it did, he divided us. And he took Adamic humanity and he divided us. Linguistically and geographically, he divided us. Likely, he even divided us racially in uh, respects there. But he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So who we are, where we are, where we live, uh, when we rise, when we fall, right? Isn't that Twinbee that wrote the, the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire? Okay? The rise and the fall of whatever? The rise and the fall of the Comanches and the rise and the fall of the People before the Comanches, the rise and the fall of the people before them. All right, because, you know, don't say that they were the first ones, because they took it from somebody before them. And they took it from somebody before them. All right. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God's in charge. Go back to Tower of Babel and read that, and you see God's in charge. Divides them by their language, scatters them abroad over the face of the earth. Then Romans 13:1, which we'll deal with also, being subject to not the godly authorities, not the rulers that are following biblical principles, but the governing authorities, the ones that are governing, the ones that are in power, the ones that are there. Not the ones you agree with, the ones that are there. So, well, I didn't vote for them. Doesn't matter. He's there. He's ruling. Well, he's not ruling in the way he should be ruling. It doesn't say the ones that rule the way they should be ruling. It says the ones that are ruling. Be subject to the governing authorities. So chew on that and we'll come back next Wednesday. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to see passages both in human and angelic issues. Also to see things both in temporal and eternal uh scope father help us to identify what is our temporal reward the special blessings in time and what is our eternal reward the special blessings in eternity and father when it comes to wealth and when it comes to ruling uh that, the bulk of that father is in eternity there's not many mighty uh, not on this earth father um just thank you for your faithfulness i thank you father in jesus christ's name amen